Welcome to the media ministry of Crossroads Church Aspen. To learn more about Crossroads, visit our website at ccaspen.com. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor Steve Woodrow. Eric, morning everybody. Hope everybody had a great Christmas. Um, we are, with the end, uh, last Sunday of December, we are this year going to wrap up our December series in Philippians. So we'll be in Philippians chapter 4 this morning and looking at this idea of sustaining joy. And boy, there's a lot here in chapter 4. But before I dive in, I want to do something. Caleb, could you, would you be okay coming up here just for a minute? Come on up here. I just got to say something. <laughs> you don't have to put your shoes on. Don't put your shoes on. Just come on up here, man. <laughs> One shoe. Come over here. Listen, this young man <clears throat> is singing at the top of his lungs to the Lord. And Caleb, okay, I want you to know something, brother, how that encourages my heart. Okay? And um, I, I want you to, to make sure that, uh, like David, remember, it was the world and his brothers that told him to be quiet. David, what made him a giant killer, a mighty man of God, was his praise. It was his songs of, of crying out to God. And uh, I just want you to know that when the world tells you it's not manly, it's not cool, you know what? God is creating a giant killer inside you. And Caleb, after your namesake, I want to pray a blessing over you, brother. Father, may this young man, because of the praise that comes out of his mouth, may he be a, a giant killer for you, God. You're creating that in him. May he lead the way, Lord, out of miles of babes when it comes to unhindered worship and praise to you. In Jesus' name. God bless you, brother. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, come on. It's good stuff, man. I just sit over there. I was just like, wow. I'm not singing loud enough, man. This is good. It's, it's awesome. It's powerful, folks. All right? We're going to talk about that here this morning, too. Sustaining joy, folks. Joy has to be fought for. Right? Faith is not osmosis. Faith is something that has to be fought for. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kind of all those things, they have to be fought for. You're in a battle. I don't know if you know it or not. There's a battle for your soul. There's a battle for your heart. There's a battle for your mind every single day. We live in a fallen world. There's a real enemy. and he, He's a thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And he will do everything he can do to keep you down and to sell you lies, right, that God is not good and he doesn't have good things for you. He will sell you lies that, that make us think that we can settle for some kind of happiness and that maybe joy is, is not really, maybe the promises of God I can't really attain for one reason or another. Those are lies. There's a real battle. To have joy, to live in sustaining joy, to live in joy, it requires a fight. And this is what Paul clearly understood. The fourth chapter, he ends this book of joy. Philippians with giving us eight, at least eight, powerful things. This is how to fight for joy. Things that were a part, very essence of Paul's um, own life um, that he lived and he modeled. And so I just want us to take us on a little journey this morning through these things. I know that's kind of small and hard to read here this morning, but we're just going to journey through these as we read this chapter together. I'm going to not waste any time. We're going to dive right in here. This is how to fight for joy. This is how to experience sustaining joy in our life. If we master, if we have the discipline, if we are able to experience these eight things, if we go after these, the promise is clear that, that we create in our soul this, this environment of, uh, of being able to sustain joy. We, our, our heart is a place where God can put his very character, his very life the, through the Holy Spirit 
the fruit of the Spirit, right? And uh, obviously we're focusing on joy because we're in desperate need of it. Again, folks, followers of Jesus should be the most joyful people on the face of the planet. Now, this is a bold statement. It is an affront to the cause of Christ for one of his followers to not be joyful. It's an affront. This idea that we coddle a depressed Christian. Now, I know I'm on edgy ground here. But I want to be very clear that this is not what Jesus intended. It is not to be coddled. It is to be going after with faith, with power to heal and change the context of character. He expects his children to be joyful, as we're going to see always. doesn't matter the consequences. There is no excuses. Otherwise, we're saying, Jesus, your sacrifice is just not enough. It's just not sufficient enough for me in my situation. All that's happened to me, it's just not sufficient for me. Right? And the church should be the most joyful place on the planet. It should be a house of joy. This should be the place where we come to get rejoyed as we talk about rejoicing, right? And so just with that context, if that bothers you, what I just said, okay, I, I, I challenge you, I encourage you to look deeply within the Scripture. The normative expectation of God is the fruit of the Spirit to reside inside the believer, to be normative experience. Now, Folks, the reality is we all have ups and downs. We all have struggles, right? The problem is when I start thinking that that's normative rather than setting my eyes on the fruit of the Spirit, that that's normative. That's what God has for me. And if I have a hard time laying hold of it, I need to sink deep into it with God and with His people to, what, get freedom and get rid of the blocks that are in the way of, of experiencing that joy. And so Paul says this. He's writing to the Philippians chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love, I long for my joy and crown. Jesus, or Paul saw the church as, uh, that he planted in Philip. These were his family because church is family. This is my joy. These are my relationships. This is my crown. When I stand before Jesus, I'm going to have these with me that I poured into, that I discipled. This is my crown. This is my joy, is what Paul is saying. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in the Lord because there's joy killers out there. Right? It's a fallen world. If you isolate, if you isolate, you will be beat up. For the spirit will be robbed from you like that. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand shoulder to shoulder, lock arms with the body of Christ to pursue these things and, be, and encourage one another. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. A very per Paul just interjects this little personal note. People he loves, people who have served and somehow there was some disagreement or something going on in the body that he pleaded. Uh, unity at all costs. Work it out. Work it out for the cause of Christ. Unity in his church. Work it out. All right, now we're diving in. Verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoice. Always. Right? Now, that's our first thing. If we're going to sustain joy, there has to be an understanding of, of, of what it means to rejoice and rejoice in the Lord always. 
And what does that look like? Now, Paul himself, he modeled, he can say this because he's writing to the Philippians and they saw it. The whole birth of the church was based upon um, his, his time with them there and his modeling to them what this idea of joy was all about. And if you go back to Acts chapter 16, we see... You know, the story where Paul is, is uh, walking uh, right to the place of prayer. And uh, if you, I won't, you can go look at the details. But on his way to the prayer, there was this lady. And she was a young lady. And she was demon-possessed. And she was a fortune teller. And she was making money for many in that, uh, in that city. And she just kept bugging them as they'd go. You know, she kept, these are the men of God. Just go read it. And finally, I love it. It says, that, you know, if Paul's going along. He, and finally, he just gets fed up with it. Turns around, and he casts the demon out, sets her free. In the name of Jesus. And immediately, you would think that the people would be like, wow, this is incredible. She's set free. But instead, right, the whole, not just the owners of this slave girl, by the way, but uh, everyone was, was up in arms. They, they came upon Paul and Silas, and they threw them in jail. They went to the inner deep jail, shackled their feet. They beat them up first, right? Um, just a little side note is when God moves, when powerful things happen, when deliverance happens, when the supernatural and God manifests, there are many who reject it and who work against it. Not just out there, but in the church. And that's always the case, right? And so here you have Paul and Silas, and they, um, they are in jail, and you go to Acts 16, and you find them. They've been beaten up, thrown in jail, Right? And, and for doing a miracle, by the way. He's done a miracle of God. So you'd think you would sit around and have a pity party. I know I would be saying, well, God, we, we set this girl free by your power. I mean, what's the deal here? Instead, it says it finds them at midnight, and they are singing hymns and prayers and praises to God while they're shackled. And it says that all the other prisoners were listening to them. And um, what I love... Uh, uh, about this, this picture, it's such, such a great story. And it goes on, right, to say, if you know the story, that uh, please go take time to, to just read it. But it says that as they were worshiping, right, the ground shook. Shackles came off. And the guard came in. In a Roman culture, if a prisoner got free, that's, the soldier would be killed instantly. It wasn't, it wasn't a good job. It was you know, a little tough job, right? And so he thrusts himself. He's about to kill himself on the on. Uh, the soldier is uh, who took care of the, the jail and Paul says wait we're all here so all the other prisoners they've been listening they didn't go anywhere they were in awe of what was going on they didn't run out of the jail and the rest of the story is right that jailer brings Paul and Silas to his house minister to them they receive his entire household receives the glory of Jesus receives Jesus and then it says they're filled with joy filled with joy right and, um, but what I want to focus on here is this, this first thing, rejoice in the Lord always. And just to talk about a couple things here. First of all, one thing, and we've talked about this before, but, but gang, it's so absolutely critical for us to understand that to rejoice in the Lord is the context of that is, is, not, is not our Western understanding of some silent prayer. Now, don't get me wrong. There's, there's a time where you have to just pray silently, right? But the whole context of the entire Bible is out loud, your entire being. 
and you see this, there's no exception to this. Here is a, a Westerners, we, the mo- I'm, I'm just going to say it, the majority of the American church today, if we were thrown in this, say, we would sit around and, and Paul and Silas, we'd be like, these would be a Western Paul and Silas. We'd sit around, okay, let's pray, let's keep calling. We don't want to offend any of the other prisoners. We don't want to bother them. You know what I mean? Let's just kind of pray silently here with one another and keep it quiet. Right? And that's exactly what Christians in America do today when it comes to church. Let me just keep quiet here. I'll just have a few good thoughts. That is not what the scripture talks about when it says rejoice before the Lord. Every context in scripture is when the body gathers together, it's out loud unto him. Right? And that's what's so encouraging about Caleb down here. It's with the top of your lungs. It's your Savior. It's your Lord. It's the, it's, the, it's the glorious one. It's the Savior of the world. I mean, again, you've heard the illustration, but it doesn't seem to be sinking in too much to us. You know, we'll go crazy at a party or at a football game, but when it comes to church, we just shut up. It shows something powerful about the hearts of American believers. Now, if, you want, if, we, if we want to nurture joy, we want to learn how to rejoice before the Lord. Here's the reality is, for most of us, we've never been taught how to pray. We've never been taught how to worship. We've never been taught how to rejoice. We've never been taught how to do what Paul and Silas were doing. We just kind of learned it when we, you learn it when you're with others who do it. Or hopefully your parents taught, you know, prayed with you or, or whatever. But, but here's the deal is, we've kind of evolved in the American church into this idea of, I'm going to just kind of wake up and have my nice little quiet time. You know, that's nowhere in the scripture, quiet time, right? That idea, and, and the problem is, it's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. Jesus went off to a solitary place. He was alone with the Father. Amen. But you will notice something. Jesus, as well as everybody else, when they talked to God, it was out loud, walking, talking, and fully engaged their entire being right before God. It wasn't this quiet thing of silent, have my nice little devotional, read a few scriptures, and, and have a good few good thoughts, journal a few notes. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with that. But if there is not a place where we are gathered with some other brothers and sisters in a smaller avenue, and we pray and we worship together out loud, and we go after the kingdom. We go after things in prayer and we learn to pray out loud with freedom and, and go for those things is, you know what? Mountains aren't moved. And, and you might say, well, actually, Steve, that sounds just so legalistic. I, I'm telling you from a context of culture and scripture and I'm telling you just from living experience. In my own life, the times where I've had a group of, of men where we gather together regularly and we go after the gates of hell, we pray out loud, we're on our knees, we're worshiping together, we're experiencing going for the presence of God, and we just cry out to God for things is when I've seen miracles. I could give testimony after testimony and mighty things move. The times where I too often fall into a season of where I'm just having my quiet time and praying alone, you know what happens? I don't see as many miracles. I don't see any mountains moved. We need one another. We gather together to do just this, to pray and spur one another out loud unto the Lord. And in worship, and something has to change in the context of our worship where we're bothered by people singing or praying out loud when we're all together. The context of Scripture, when it says, church, let's pray, everybody just start praying. Because we love the Lord. And we're, the greatest commandment is to love Him with what? Our entire being. And you can't love the Lord with your entire being when it's silent. 
My whole body, everything needs to be wrapped up in the glory of God. And the very fact that maybe some people watching online or listening to this, this bothers like, oh, this is just too late. This is too narrow. This is too, I just challenge you. I exhort you. If this bothers you, you need to root out why it bothers you. You need to dig in. Why does that bother you? Why does this make you feel uncomfortable? And uh, folks, I I would just say, man, if you don't have that kind of group, it could be your community, you could do it in a large group, a community group, one of our microchurches, your discipleship group, ideally. But if you don't have that that, that group of of men or women that you just, just get together and your sole purpose is to just encourage each other, but let's get in the presence of God, let's pray. Let's pray. This is how revival's begun. This is how things change. It is not isolated prayer, silent prayer. You study throughout history, any great move of God, it was when people gathered together, small groups, and they pressed in right before God to see him do something great. And I would just say, if, you're, if you've never had that opportunity, boy, we want to be a, a place that nurtures that, offers that, helps develop that, move that, and just an encouragement, pray for that. Pray for that. That is how we learn to rejoice in the Lord. Right? We need one another. As, yes, there's a time to be alone with God in prayer, obviously. But what we see in Scripture that is every, all of Scripture is written to the church. Do you know? It's, it's in the plural. We are Westerners. We read it so individualistically. It is to be done together. Right? Together. And, um, and so I just throw that out. It's just something to think about. It's like, wow, Lord... Do I have that? And again, I can give you testimony after testimony. I've had the privilege to be around the world and pray with believers on many different continents. And I'm telling you right now is whether it was Africa, whether it was India, whether it was Nepal, whether it was the Middle East, I mean, whatever it is, is when I came together with a a group of those believers, let me tell you, they didn't mess around. It was no sit down and, 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 you uh, you know, put your hands on your your knees, and, and let's just kind of go around the circle and have a nice little prayer. That is only in a Western context. When they said pray, people were on their feet, they were on their knees, and they were crying out to God. And they didn't take turns because they all had a straight line to God. And it was powerful because their entire being was involved in that. You say, oh, well, that's cultural. No, it's called loving God with your entire being. And learning how to truly rejoice in the Lord always. Always. The difference between those type of prayer meetings versus what so much is modeled for us in our American context is such a radical context. And I'm here to tell you, if you've never, I just give you this as encouragement, if you've never seen a miracle, if you've never seen God really move a mountain or answer a mighty prayer in your life, I say, well, you need to bring others in. You need to get into a prayer group. You need to go out. You need to change, right, what prayer looks like and rejoicing before the Lord looks like, okay? Does that make sense, okay? Rejoice in the Lord, always. doesn't matter what the circumstance is. And Paul is writing to the Philippians here. Obviously, they knew what Paul went. They knew Paul modeled this. He's not telling them something he did not absolutely model in his own life, right? Before the people of God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Whew. This is something we need today more than ever, right? Let your reasonableness. Church, be reasonable with each other. 
And then it says to everyone, so church, first we need to model a gracious, grace is not able to grow and be part of the culture without reasonableness, okay? Grace brings us into a place of reasonableness. And, um, and the church should be modeling this. Look, folks, just look at what's going on in our culture. I want to just say a couple things here on this idea. Now what this is, is that I take the time to hear your, what you have to think. In other words, we, we take the time to hear a, a others' perspective on things, and let's be reasonable. We come together, let's be reasonable on this, right? and, and, and let's move forward. Let's not get extreme, and let's not blame shame, right? Let's, let's be reasonable, right, with, with each other. And uh, this should be the model within church to what? Have grace for each other as we talk and as we sit down, and at all costs, maintain unity of the body. Even if that means we agree to disagree on something, let's be reasonable in how we talk about each other and, um, and how we work things out. So just a couple things. Some people think it's unreasonable that we are gathering in person as God's church in the midst of COVID. Okay, so let me answer. Is, um, our answer should be to anyone that raises that issue, it should be simply this. We're not in rebellion because that would be sin. We're not in protest, right? That's not right either. Is it, there's none of that. We're not holding up our constitutional rights, though we could. That's not the issue either. We have a higher obedience. And our higher obedience is to obey God first. And His word is about as clear as it can be. It is, do not forsake gathering together. Is To be a follower of Jesus is to be saved into the ecclesia. Ecclesia means the gathered, physical gathered body of believers. And so we obey God because he calls us to gather and where two or more are gathered, he is present there. Whether it's in our microchurches, small or larger gatherings, is the church by definition is the gathered family of God. So let's be reasonable. That is our heart. We will do everything we can do to work with guidelines and commitments and, and safety things to make sure that we're keeping everybody safe, but we have a higher obedience. So be God and trust Him in the midst of everything. That is the church to gather, right, together. Now, in the midst of that, there's a place of grace, right? And, and to realize that in the midst of these, this crazy year and everything going on is that everybody's on a different faith journey, a different conviction journey. Right when it comes to feeling safe or what, uh, what they should do with uh, distancing and whether they should gather or not. And there's grace for that. The last thing that needs to happen in the church is for there to be what? A blame-shame thing going on, especially in the church. There needs to be what? Reasonableness. Tell me how you're feeling. So, okay, well, bl bless you, brother or sister. You need to stay there online for a while or maybe feel more comfortable in this smaller gathering, whatever it is. Man, there is room. There's grace for everybody to journey wherever they're at. Right in this journey of, of, of faith and, and hearing from God and what everybody feels is appropriate right, for them to do. Does that make sense? It's being reasonable. And folks, I, I just I got to deal with something because it is, and we're going to have to deal with this more and more, but there is something so ugly, so dark that is taking over in our culture today in light of all this. It is so dark and evil, and it's creeping into the church in this blame, shame, this blaming people for giving them COVID or, or, or like you could ever prove it. You can never prove it no matter what, right? Just by living life, you're, you're, you're at danger and risk of, of things. 
But here's the deal. This is so dangerous, folks. We've got to call this out, and the church has to model reasonableness here and unity and grace, right? Yes, we have to be considerate of each other, where each other at, and, and, and be considerate of safety for the more vulnerable and for those that are, have uh, you know, comorbidities and all that stuff. Of course, of course. But the last thing we need to do, it is getting so ugly, folks, how people are treating each other, people blaming each other, Right? It, it is it, people tattling, people ratting on people, people consumed about making sure that who, who, uh, who was exposed and let that person know and that per- whatever it may be is, is, listen, we're the people of God. And there needs to be a reasonableness that says faith goes first here and consideration of love of my brother and sister not being consumed, right? Because here's the deal is that because of all the media and everything going on, is people are so fearful right now. And, um, and, and, and the, here's the lie. The lie that we think we can actually control this. I mean, does anybody think you, that we can control it? Even with the most strict lockdowns, do you think you can control it? And here's the lesson for, for the church needs to learn it first, the sovereignty of God. We trust in a God that is and only knows how it passes from here to there ultimately, who is going to ultimately get it and everything else. Reasonableness and trusting God. And yes, of course, being considerate, loving, caring for each other and, and being wise and not purposefully, right, uh, you know, being a, if you're sick, being around somebody, of course. Those should be commonsensical things, but the level it's going at right now, folks, it is dividing families, churches, communities, and our nation. The church must regain a sense of reasonableness and grace in how we treat each other. You know what? Somebody might have different conviction than you do. Be reasonable. Honor their conviction. Don't impress yours upon them and vice versa. Be grace. Be at grace with, with, show grace to each other. Be reasonable with each other. And the last thing that anybody needs to do is blame somebody else, right, for passing on something on there's no way to prove that that is ugly beyond ugliness no matter where it is right be loving be considerate and maybe somebody is more reckless than what you think should be done but as long as they did that in faith you know what you got to show them grace and that is what paul's talking about be reasonable don't be extreme Be united and be gracious in your dealings with those who have different ideas than you do, right? The church has got to model this, right? We've got to model this. And that's the same thing for this interesting journey we're on. Some staying online. Grace to those of you watching online. When I talk about the church's gathered, my encouragement for the online folks is just don't stay online. Make sure you're gathering in a smaller, ask God where it could gather, a smaller group here or there, or when it's free to come back, right? But there's grace for all of us, right, to have a, a season of let the Lord strengthen us through this process. So if we are going to have sustaining joy, I'm telling you right now, the conversations that are going on, it, it is just ugly out there. How people are talking to each other, the whole mass thing, I mean, who made you the police of somebody else if they don't have a mask on? That's just, it's terrible. Have some grace. Do your thing, but don't impress it on your brother or your sister, especially in the church, right? Be gracious, be reasonable, right? And if you do need to say something, do it with grace. Do it reasonably, right? 
Because that is the greatest joy killer. And I'm telling you what, there's so much joy. I could give you situation after situation, even this last week that I experienced, right, with people is talk about joy killing, right? All right, so if we're going to have sustainable joy, we must learn to be reasonable and model grace with each other. And that needs to flow out. We need to set the tone for this, right? And that's what we said all along here in the church. There is no policing here. Don't walk in here. You better not get on somebody else for not wearing a mask. If that's your state, you need to stay home. It's not your role. You have to be gracious, okay? If you have a problem with somebody, you need to get with them one-on-one graciously and have an honest conversation and hear that person's conviction about something, right? It's grace, right? And, to, and take time to hear each other's conviction because something that's not done in faith is, you know, is, is, is sin, and so we all need to be encouraging each other in this process of faith and grace, okay? All right, enough on that one. But we move on. Look at this. The next part says, the Lord is at hand. Next part of verse 5, the Lord is at hand. Now, why is Paul tagged? He just seems out of place. Rejoice in the Lord always. Be reasonable, church. For the Lord is at hand. It's the ultimate in accountability to always remember, as we say up here, live like the Lord is watching. You think that's going to change things? Live like the Lord is watching. Before I say anything, before I do anything, before I react to somebody, uh, and boy, boy, thank the Lord. There's several times this last week where I wanted to react to somebody else's reaction that was not reasonable at all, and I'm about to jump right in it. You know, and I'm biting my tongue. I just want to just bring, you know, and it's like, all right, Lord, no. You're at hand. Please just let me, let me uh, be gracious, right? Um, and that has always happened, right? I've jumped in there with the best of them. The Lord is at hand. Folks, here's the deal. If we want to have joy in our life, there has to be this living reality that, as the Scripture says, the Lord knows my every thought and my intention of my, of my life, the innermost parts of my life. I have to be able to live with ultimate accountability that everything I do and say is before him. And that's going to be the filter of, okay, Lord, is let me put that back through. And before I say something, before I react, before I have a stance on, on everything, is, is there, Lord, is your word behind this? Well, what's the truth in all this, right? So um, live like, right, the Lord is watching. And that should just go for every aspect, right, of, of our life, right? The Lord is at hand, he says. All right, now we get to one of the most famous passages, verses 6 through 7 here. And Paul commends the church, says, Do not be anxious about anything. Wow. How about that one? It's a little tough, huh? Anybody struggling with anxiety this last year? Let's just say we all. But Paul says, church, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace, here's the promise, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Wow, what a promise. Now, folks, let's just get real honest and raw with this passage. That's a promise. Absolute promise of God. Don't be anxious about anything. And he says this in many different ways throughout the Gospels and other places. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these other things will be added. Don't worry about them. But folks, we are in the midst of the, the uh, emotional health crisis like never before as a nation. And that's crept into the church. 
And the number of people who are in reality really experiencing the reality of this and are seeing anxiety defeated, where is that happening? Right? Where are the testimonies of that? Where, where's the real, if we just got raw and, and real, all of us, is, boy, are we touching, laying hold of the peace of God? Genuinely, the peace of God is promised over your mind, over your heart. That is what he desires. And again, peace is other fruit of the Spirit, right? It comes with joy. So just a couple things here, um, just in my, my experience with this. Two things. One is I have found in my own life that it is possible even in the midst of praying, even in the midst of bringing thanksgiving to God to actually have my anxiety increase. Now, here's the deal. Is, and the, and the Lord actually showed me this recently, is that um, because it's possible to come to God in prayer and to come to Him in thanksgiving and never leave my request at the altar. And my, my habit is, and it's so subtle but powerful, right, is God here, here's my request. Here's what I'm anxious about. Fix it, God. But I'm telling God how to fix it. And I have in my mind, this is how this needs to happen. So I'm coming to God with my agenda, right, and still with my control over the thing, and I never really lay it down at the altar. So what happens is that thing stays on me. It stays on me, and therefore that anxiety actually builds. Does this make sense, gang? And so what's required here is that there needs to be a powerful exchange in prayer. Now, I'm going to tag this back to what I said earlier. If I can't get breakthrough alone in my prayer on this thing, guess what? God calls me. I need to raise the flag. Up. Oh, I need to get with some prayer. Work. I need to get with some, some men. We can get on our knees and, and go after it. We need to move a mountain here, right? In other words, never, you know what? He, he never meant us to fight battles alone. That usually doesn't go real well. On the occasion, you have the Dave and Goliaths. But most of the time, we're always to have a troop with us, right? An army behind us. A group of inner men and women, right? To fight with us. And um, so here's the other thing with that. Is not only we must have a, a, this powerful exchange, right? Of, of leaving that request at the altar. And folks, I, I just, I know in my own life, there's a radical difference in it. The old... Saints of old that knew how to pray, and, and I really, this is a big statement, but I just think, folks, we don't know how to pray today. We as America, we've been so media-driven with instant this, instant that, so busy in our schedules, we don't know what it is to pray something through. You ever heard that terminology? We're going to pray this through. That means we're not going to leave it until we know that God's heard it. And that means that I know that burden is laid down. And when I get up from prayer, or a season of prayer, I walk, I know that the burden of anxiety has left me because I had, I prayed it through with others, and it was left. Now, folks, this doesn't happen like this. Here's the, the last thing about this. If we're not experiencing the power of this, is, is there, there's nothing instant about this. This is something that was a practice of, of Paul. It took it took a discipline, meaning that it doesn't happen just like this. This means there is a sense of faith, meaning I'm not experiencing it, but I'm staying at it. I'm not experiencing it. 
I'm going to call others into it. I'm going after it. Lord, show me how to lay this anxiety down. I need to pray it through, God, and I'm going to stay at it until, Lord, you're true to your promise. And then there is this power that comes, folks, when we are able to take the promise that God promises and put it before him. God, this is what you promised. I'm standing on your promises where he says earlier, stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord and we stand on his promises. God, this is what you said. I'm calling you to that. Do whatever you need to do in me so that promise is true to me. Now that's getting somewhere, right? And be careful when you say that prayer. God will start moving, right? We have to learn how to pray it through. And folks, this, the peace... The fruit of the Spirit is not going to come just by osmosis. It's not going to come by nice little quiet times. It's not going to come by, by you know, just uh, the routine that most of the Christian church has fallen into. It's only going to come when a group of men and women come together and they start pressing in right to the gates of heaven and calling out the promises and calling God to be true to his promises and getting shifting the context right so that my agenda is out of the way. Lord, your will be done. And folks, we say that, we sing that, but folks, that is deep work. This stuff that Paul, he learned it. He didn't just always woke up and start being able to pray with shackles on. You think that was natural? That was years of discipline, years of going after God, years of faithfulness, of, of serving God, right? So folks, if we want joy and sustaining joy, we've got to learn how to be prayerful and thankful and not anxious. We've got to learn how to pray it through. We've got to learn how to truly pray with others, where there's freedom and boldness before God, right, to see something move, where we get really, right, just bold before God. Lord, we're not seeing it. This is what you promised. We're not seeing it. And folks, there's been no, uh, you, just name any, there's never been a movement of God that we know of in all the world that was not sparked by a small group of men and women who came together and they prayed things through and their passion for God to see God do something, to revive something, to revive His church, move in a certain area of the world, whatever it is, and they just kept at it. God, you do it, you do it, you do it, right? And we need to start with our own soul. I gotta, I gotta have it here. I gotta be honest with God. If I'm not, I need to be honest with myself and others. Let's go after this. I wanna get rid of this, right? Does it make sense, gang? All right, number five, starting with verse, um, verse eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything of excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Man, this is a shot across the bow of, all, of our entertainment, arts, and everything else, culture in America. We flirt with the idea that I can expose myself to this, I can read this, I can watch this, I can be entertained like this. I'm telling you, if there isn't a sense of the Holy Spirit bothering you, if you expose yourself to this or that, you know what, there'll never be joy. Because you know what, God's house, His presence, Holy Spirit won't come into your soul, my soul, if I'm entertaining myself on the things of the world. It's just that simple. If I'm willing to entertain myself in the things of the world, you know what? His presence will not reside here. And Jesus said this as clear as he could in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, they shall see God. Man, I tell you, I was in a tough time when I was a single, getting out of, uh, 
um, graduated and was working, making money, happy hour, having a lot of fun. But hey, I was in church doing the Christian thing and, and just living just living life. It was awesome. And I was in a discipleship group. And, and um, I just never forget one night. And uh, man, the, the guy that was leading the group, he laid that thing down. Matthew 5, 8, never forget it as long as I live. He says, here's the deal, men. In this, He called us to something higher. He says, what do you want? You want to continue, right? The things that you want to continue in your impurity or you want to see God? Which one do you want? Because you can't have both. And the American church is in that same boat right now. And that was a trajectory that changed the course of my life. That one verse, that one night, right, where he laid it down. What do you want? You want, right, to coddle the impurities of the world or you want to see God, right? And you know what the thing is? You've got to have men and women in your life who are bold enough to say, let's go, brother, sister, come on. Let's go after God. And we're going to hold each other accountable for that. We need that. We want that. right? Think on what is good, excellent, pure. Young people, just please turn off the media. What do you want? Do you want all that crap? I'll tell you right now, it's only going to destroy your life. Or you want God. There's a promise. Blessed are the pure in heart. They'll see God. What do you want to see? What do you want to see? Hope that makes sense. We can say a lot about that. And then Paul goes on. Listen to this, boy, verse 9. What have you learned and received and heard and seen in me? Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Practice them. Paul said, look at me. And you know, every one of us who follow Jesus, we should be able to say to others, follow me. Imitate how I live. That's called discipleship. We should be following somebody else who's further down the road, imitating them, and we should be saying to others, say, hey, imitate me. Let me show you how to pray. Imitate how I pray. Imitate how I, my language. Imitate what I do with my resources and time. Whoa. And, and what's the American church? Oh, no, I, I, I can't do that. Then you can't follow Jesus. Then you can't follow Jesus. It's just that simple. That is the Great Commission, right? And so practice godliness. Practice godliness. Right? Put it into practice. Put it into practice. Right? Take the word of God and, and let's get in. There is joy, again, God's presence is not going to reside in me unless I'm willing to step out in faith and practice godliness. Put the word of God right to, to work. All right, number seven. All right, listen carefully here. Woo. Verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re- re- revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Let me read that again. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to bound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Probably the most misquoted, misused verse in all of the New Testament in America today. Most of the time you hear, I can do all things through Christ. You see it on an athletic billboard or, or something. Somebody has their own agenda or their own vision or goal. And I can do all things. That's t- taking God's word right out of its context. This specifically is relating to Paul learning contentment. Learning contentment. Wow. Folks, that's something in our consumer culture today 
Director, y'all can, you can come on up. In our consumer culture today, that, um, that we are radically missing, consumerism breeds competitiveness, which breeds comparison, right, which is all built upon the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet. Without contentment, there will be no joy. Without contentment, godly contentment, and Paul tells Timothy, right? He says, godliness plus contentment is what? Great gain, right? Without those things, there is no joy. And so we have to fight for this. We have to fight, and Paul says he learned it. He had to learn it, and whether he had a lot or whether he had nothing, he had to learn contentment. And folks, there's so much more to say here, but I would just say, you know what? I think learning contentment is a thousand times harder when I'm in abundance than when I am in lacking. When life was simple and didn't have much stuff, you know what? It was simple and it was, there was a freedom in that. It's when the stuff comes and you need more stuff to take care of that stuff and stuff and stuff and stuff, right? That what? And we just think that, again, our culture is built upon you need more stuff to make you happy and joyful. You know what the Bible says? You need less stuff and you need to leverage the stuff you have for greater things. And that leads to the last thing which he says here for us. It says, it was kind of you to share my trouble and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Wow, giving, be a giver. Without being a giver, joy is not going to, consumerism is going to take over. And uh, it goes on to say, now I know that uh, my God will supply all that you need. All right, all that you need. To live in that kind of freedom and that kind of joy. And uh, folks, church is not philanthropy. Church is not philanthropy. And what Paul is saying is, be givers for the kingdom, for the partnership of the gospel through the multiplying of his church around the world. That is where the real joy is, and that's what God is most concerned about in the world. right? Give, yes, abundantly to here and there, but make sure the focus is first fruits to the house of God and to the partnership of the gospel for the expansion of the church and what God is doing unto all nations of the world. right? Joy, because guess what? You're partnering with God and His mission in the world. right? That's His mission, and to give. And so, folks, um, there's eight things. And uh, boy, we just scratched the surface of that. And those are the things to lay hold of when it comes to sustaining joy. And, and, and these are God's promises. If we learn these things, if we go after these things, God's promise is joy. This is how to prepare our, our house, right? To be a church house of joy, but also individually, right? As people of joy. So, Father, um, we just ask this morning, Lord, on this last Sunday of 2020, Lord, we rejoice in who you are. Father, we love you. Jesus, what a Savior you are. Holy Spirit, what, what amazing blessing that you're among us, in us. Work with us, through us. Lord, increase our joy. Let's be a church known, stamped for our joy of the Lord. Father, anybody watching online, anybody here, Lord, that's really wrestling with joy. Father, I pray, first and foremost, the beginning place, Lord, that they would find some mighty men of faith and mighty women of faith, Lord, to join in 
to learn how to pray. Learn how to really pray. Learn how to pray something through. God, multiply. Multiply your joy, Lord. Love you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. To hear other messages or learn more about Crossroads Church, visit our website at ccaspen.com.